Yes, all right, good morning. Uh, if you'd please turn in your Bibles to Leviticus, uh, book of Leviticus, chapter 23. We'll be looking from chapter 23 through the end of the book uh, today. And uh, just as we complete this uh, series, I would like to share with you, we've gone very fast through a very challenging book, also a magnificent book. If you have any questions, you know, there's some things that I wasn't able to cover in detail and in your reading of Leviticus, even through these sermons, if any questions have come up uh, that you're wondering, oh, what does that mean and how does that apply, feel free to reach out to us. I'd love to hear from you by email or WhatsApp or whatever it is, and I'm happy to uh, help answer your questions and better understand the scripture. I also want to, if you didn't catch it in the announcements earlier, uh, highlight to you that God's uh, grace and provision is blessing this church. I'm so thankful for the provision of Christian Luanda and Will Barkley uh, to be candidates for the two associate pastor roles. Uh, they'll be preaching the next two Fridays. It's very exciting. And we will have the uh, know, know the Candidate events uh, on Wednesday, October 27th and 29th of October, Friday. Uh, both opportunities for members of our church. Please do come out to those. Make it a priority uh, to meet these brothers, to ask them your questions. You can submit your questions in the, there's a Google form online when you register. And I think it, it's really important for us uh, to know these men whom, Lord willing, will be serving and leading ECC in this next season, will be serving as pastors in this congregation if the Lord wills. So uh, let's be in prayer for that and make that a priority. If you would uh, go with me to the Lord in prayer one more time before we look at His Word. Heavenly Father, our gracious God, would you speak to us in the Scriptures and show us our Lord Jesus Christ by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So May to September is a very important and very celebratory season in the Sequera household. Some of you who know us might know that somehow, providentially, God has arranged that all of the birthdays of my family members fall between the end of May and the beginning of September every month on the month. And so every month, you know, there's a big celebration, uh, there's cake for breakfast, and uh, we're remembering birthdays and God's faithfulness. Calendars are important. They mark for us special days special seasons. They help us with daily rhythms, weekly rhythms, monthly and annual days of significance being marked out, both in our lives and in society. Calendars provide a convenient tool to keep track of time, to keep track of days, of seasons, of critical appointments. Calendars are also insightful for what they reveal. You see, your calendar can reveal what you value. It tells a story about what's important to you, what you prioritize, and it can say a whole lot about what controls your life. What does your calendar say about what you value? What does it say about what takes priority in your life? For the ancient Israelites, as the people of God, they were to recognize that their time and their days belong to the Lord. All of life, their calendars, were regulated by God for worship according to His Word. And in today's passage, we see how all of Israel's calendar is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And how we as the new covenant people of God should find our rest in Jesus alone. So this morning as we behold God's faithfulness in the gospel, I pray that our hearts would be stirred with the desire to live all our days under the lordship of Jesus. And as we go through this passage, we're going to look at three ways that our lives must be ordered around Jesus' Lordship and what He has accomplished for us. First, in Christ, we keep God's Sabbaths. We keep God's Sabbaths in Christ. Look at chapter 23, verses 1 to 3. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So the text begins once again as you are familiar now from Leviticus with God speaking. God is commanding. He is establishing commands for how time and calendars should be ordered among his people. You might remember the theme of this book, of the book of Leviticus, is that God makes the way, provides the way for sinners to live in his presence. The holy God makes a way for sinners to live and find life, to dwell in his presence. Israel were God's people. And to live in God's presence, their lives needed to be regulated by God's commands. Specifically in this section, God's commands to meet with Him in worship. Last week we saw God's commands to be holy, that they were to be a holy people as God Himself is holy. What is the purpose of holiness? It's not holiness for holiness' sake, but the purpose of holiness was fellowship with God, to live in the presence of the holy God. And so Israel were to be a holy people, this week we're seeing that they were to have holy days. Might not surprise you that holy days is from where we get the English word holiday. God gives his people holidays to be holy days, to have fellowship with him. And all of their lives were regulated by his appointed times for worship. They were to gather as he commanded, when he commanded, and they were to do what he commanded. The calendars of God's people, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, generation after generation, were ordered under the lordship of God. And they gave constant reminders of God's faithfulness and his presence with his people. And fundamental to their rhythm of life was a weekly rest called the Sabbath. The Sabbath. So they would work for six days every week, and then all of work, all of life would come to a complete stop. And the seventh day was to be marked by solemn rest. It was to be devoted to the Lord. A holiday, a holy day. Why this principle of Sabbath on the seventh day? Well, it was because God wanted his people to imitate him, their creator. Maybe you've read and you're familiar with Genesis. In the book of Genesis, God himself creates the heavens and the earth in six days and fills all the earth. And then after completing his work of creation, God rested on the seventh day. He blessed the seventh day as a day of rest for man to have fellowship with his creator. This seventh day in Israel's life then was to be a day consecrated to the Lord. And this was meant to be a blessing for God's people. It was meant to bring refreshment and restoration to their souls and their lives. Think about the context. Think about Israel just before this. They were slaves in Egypt, working 24-7 under harsh, back-breaking slavery. And God has rescued them from slavery and brought them to himself. And this merciful God and Redeemer is now giving them this rhythm of one day in seven being a day of rest. So that every week, week after week, year after year, Israel was reminded, life is not about all about us. Life is not about just simply this world. No, their lives and their days were to be lived under the lordship and the blessing of the one who had redeemed them. This is beautifully and even symbolically conveyed in chapter 24 in the first nine verses. I'm not going to read those for you now. But in the holy place of the tabernacle, the priests were to go in week after week, and they had this lampstand, which was to be kept constantly lit, and there was a special table on which the priest was to arrange 12 loaves of specially baked bread. 12 loaves symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God. 
And so in the holy place you had this symbolic illustration of the people of God basking in the light of God's presence. And they would arrange this bread Sabbath by Sabbath. The Sabbath pattern not only took place from week to week, but covered even broader sections in the calendar. So every seventh month, Israel's calendar had the three major autumn or fall festivals. We'll see those in detail later today. Every seventh month was a special month. On top of that, every seventh year was a Sabbath year. Look at uh, chapter 25, verses 1 to 4. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. That's radical and remarkable in an agricultural society. For six years they were to work, but the seventh year, rest. No pruning the vineyard, no sowing the field, no gathering the harvest in the seventh year. You know, one pastor illustrates this very nicely by saying, imagine if, if you were to go, you know, maybe some of you have this uh, as a fantasy or a dream. If you were to go to your boss and say, I need a day off. And your boss asks, for what? And you say, well, I, I just want to rest. Then imagine your boss replies to you, well, don't just take the day off, take a whole year off. You might be really excited. And you might feel shocked and amazed. And then all of a sudden, a question would pop in your mind, a couple of questions. like You might ask him, well, is that paid or unpaid year off? And he says, well, it's unpaid. Just, just live off what you made the previous year. Then all your excitement would turn to anxiety. And then you would feel that your day off became a layoff. Well, believe it or not, that's exactly what God commanded in ancient Israel. They were to take a year off every seventh year. And they were to trust their provider that their God would provide enough in the sixth year to last them two whole years. It was a symbol of trust in God. On top of that, so we've seen every seven days, seven months, seven years. On top of that, every seven times seven years, that is every 49 years, Israel was to celebrate a super Sabbath year, the year of Jubilee. And the law for this special year is in the rest of chapter 25, beginning in verse 8. We read this. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that at the time of seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall sound the trumpet throughout your, all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. So every seven times seven, after 49 years, in the 50th year they had this special year of jubilee. And the year of Jubilee uh, had several laws attached to it. If you read the rest of chapter 25, you'll see all those laws. It was a year not only for a super Sabbath, but for a special release granted to the people. Release from debts. Release from servitude. You see, in ancient Israel, just like today, it was possible to fall into debt and to become impoverished and to find yourself in a very difficult situation with an insurmountable debt to pay, as we often see even in the UAE. And today's society, sometimes people ultimately go to prison when they're in such situations. In ancient Israel, God provided a way for people to get out of this very difficult situation. And it was this, that if they found themselves in a debt that they could not pay, someone could sell themselves into servitude. So they would commit to serving somebody, for a number of years until the debt would be finally repaid. Similarly, if someone owned property, if you owned land, you could sell off your land. And your land, giving up your property, would enable you 
to pay the debt. But this was never permanent. They were never permanently releasing their property nor permanently giving themselves up to servitude. That's why the year of Jubilee existed. So that in this year of Jubilee, everyone who was serving as a servant would be released. Everyone who had given up his property would actually get it back. It would be given back to them. And through this, in the ancient world, in Israel, God ensured that there was social justice in society, that there was care for one another among the people of Israel, that the rich did not keep growing stronger and stronger and richer and richer while the poor suffered injustice and oppression. God protected His people and regulated all of this. And God reminds His people that they belong to Him. The people are servants, ultimately, of the Lord. The land belongs to the Lord. He is the ultimate landlord and landowner. And so it was to be released to its ancestral owners in the year of Jubilee. And so it was a blessing for God's people. And so we see these Sabbath patterns here in Leviticus. And these Sabbath patterns were meant to teach God's people to trust in Him. To trust in His provision, in His faithfulness. They were taught that their lives and ours should revolve around God. Life should be radically God-centered. And you can imagine how unique and peculiar and strange this was in the ancient world. Israel compared to the nations around them, while the pagan nations were running the rat race, constantly working 24-7, trade never stops, agriculture never stops. Israel, everything comes to a break every seven days that these days were set apart and devoted to God, that Israel was distinct from the world, not keeping up the frantic pace of the nations around them, but trusting their Creator, their Redeemer. So how about you, friends? Do you trust your Creator, your Redeemer? Is your life marked by a trust and rest in God and His grace? Or is your life marked by constant working, constant busyness and anxiety, restlessness, frantic pace, day in and day out, non-stop? We all know how this is, right? The, the Abu Dhabi life, the UAE life, you can just go non-stop. The smartphone life, constantly on the phone, checking emails, checking social media, checking WhatsApp messages, getting WhatsApp messages 24-7 in the middle of the night, all the time. A lack of calmness in our souls. Now, I've just found it very helpful to make this practice of putting times in my day and my week where I will come home, turn off the phone, give it to my wife and say, please put this in a place where I don't know and I can't find it. It's helpful to create calmness. Dear friend, is your pursuit of a quote-unquote good life leading to anxiety and restlessness? Is your life marked by worry and frenetic anxiety, fretful toil? Or do you live in joyful trust in the Lord? Do you find times to rest or are you living 24-7 like a slave in Egypt? One pastor asks the important question, how many millions sleep and wake up like atheists? That's a very pertinent question here in the UAE. Friend, are you going to bed and waking up and going through each day as though God didn't exist? You know, one study found that 80% of all Christians, this is 80% of Christian believers, the first thing in the morning, before pouring the coffee, or brushing their teeth, or spending time in the Lord, before praying, the first thing in the morning, 80% of Christian believers check their smartphone. Again, I found it a helpful practice not to take my phone into the bedroom with me at night. Leave it outside and go to bed so that the first thing I have when I wake up is not my phone. 
I want to speak especially to the younger generation in this. We stay up all night, you know, constantly busy, busy, busy. Friend, is your life characterized by an attitude of trust in the Lord to rest and to seek Him? Do you cultivate times in your life to spend time in God's Word and in prayer for the sake of your soul? Do you make it a priority to gather with God's people for worship, to regularly seek His face, to be here so as the people of God, we can bask in the light of God's presence? Or do other priorities crowd that out? Do you live with a jubilee mindset with regard to your possessions? You know, every 50 years, this is, the people of Israel would have to give up some of their stuff. What about you? may not be... In 50 years, but I guarantee you, there is coming a year and a day when you'll have to give up all your stuff. Do you hold it loosely? One question that will often arise here on this point is, well, what about us as Christians? Does the Sabbath apply to us? Are we supposed to keep the Sabbath? Is there meant to be a day once in a week when we have to rest from all work and worldly activities? And in Christian teaching and Christian history, there are two interpretations of the Bible, two main views on that question. Uh, the first view, and this is a very venerable view, many godly believers and teachers hold this view. The first view is that yes, there is a Christian Sabbath, that as believers, the Sabbath carries over for us. We have the day which we are supposed to keep once a week to gather with the people of God, and we are to spend the whole of that day in worship and fellowship and rest and not undertake worldly employments and activities, not work, in other words. That's one very common view. And the other view, the second view, is what we call a Lord's Day view. It's different from the first view, the Sabbatarian view. The Lord's Day view would say, no, actually, the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so for a Christian, all of life is Sabbath. All of life is consecrated to Jesus and to Christ. Uh, one thing on which both views agree, however, is that once a week, gathering with the church, with the people of God, is commanded in the New Testament and is mandated for all Christians. That's common between both views, all right? And you might hold any one of those views. I want to encourage you, whatever view you hold, uh, to treat others who hold a different view with grace uh, to recognize that faithful, there are faithful Christians on both sides, and so we ought to show respect and appreciation for others if they hold a different view. Romans 14, 5 says this, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So whatever your view, you should treat others with grace. My personal conviction, and I am convinced of the second view, I hold to a Lord's Day view, I believe, that the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. I, I think that's the clear teaching of the New Testament, and we see that especially in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. In these chapters, the author of Hebrews shows us that the Sabbath was pointing forward to the heavenly rest that Jesus accomplishes and brings into our lives. And, and we see this in Hebrews 4.3. He says, we who have believed enter that rest. So the Sabbath was meant to point forward to the rest that we have in Jesus. We also see this in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, which our brother John read earlier. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. He includes the Sabbath there. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Christ fulfills the Sabbath, and all of life we are to be resting in Jesus. And so the question for you, dear believer, is, are you resting in Christ? Is your trust in Him? Or is your heart and your soul and your life marked by trust in other things and anxiety? You know, Jesus welcomes us to come to Him to find rest for our weary, weary souls. He says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. He says, Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
Our Savior is so gentle, so tender, and He calls us to come to Him and He promises us rest. Jesus is our jubilee. He is our jubilee. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, quoting Isaiah, Jesus says this, He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Verse 19, uh, he says, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And then in verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, he's referring to the year of Jubilee. This finds its fulfillment in Christ, that Jesus releases us from our debts and he frees us from slavery to sin. And so I want to call you and encourage you again this morning to find your Sabbath, to find your rest, to find your jubilee, your freedom from burden and toil in Jesus. And through Jesus, we find deep and abiding joy. See, not only does this passage show us that in Christ we keep God's Sabbath, but it also reveals to us that in Christ we keep God's feasts. We keep God's festivals in Christ. I told you that this entire section of Leviticus focuses on sacred time. We've seen that with regard to the Sabbaths. We also see it in the festivals. Look at chapter 23, verse 4. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. The phrase translated there, appointed feasts, uh, simply in Hebrew means meetings. These are God's appointments, his appointed meetings. And the second phrase there, holy convocations, uh, again from the Hebrew means calling. This is a specially called assembly. God appointed these meetings, these specially called assemblies throughout the year for his people. And as you read the rest of chapter 23, you'll see that there were seven of these festivals in a year, four in the spring and three in the fall. Four in the spring and three in the fall. So we look at the, the spring festivals. If you have your outline in the bulletin, there's, uh, I've tried to give you some helpful illustration of how the calendar was arranged. The f- spring festivals began with Passover in verse 5. And Passover, you might remember, re- uh, commemorates how God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, how they took uh, the blood of a slaughtered lamb and put it on the doorposts, And God passed through Egypt, bringing judgment on the Egyptians with death of the firstborn, but spared the Israelites, passed over their sin, and rescued them from slavery. The next feast, which was very closely associated with Passover, was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 23. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, again, looks back at that time when they were to leave that land, they were to leave Egypt in haste. There was to be an urgency to depart from Egypt and so there was no time to let the bread leaven and so they were to eat unleavened bread and they remember that in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The next spring festival was the Feast of First Fruits. That's in uh, verses 9 to 14 of chapter 23. And, And this was to celebrate the beginning of the harvest. When Israel came into the promised land, they were to celebrate God's provision at the start of the harvest by bringing the first sheaf of barley to the priest and the priest would then on behalf of the worshiper lift up the sheaf before the Lord and they would celebrate God's goodness and anticipate uh, what God would bring in the harvest with thanksgiving. Next spring festival was the Feast of Weeks also known as Pentecost 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Pentecost celebrates the completion of the harvest. It celebrates God's giving and generosity that God has abundantly given and provided for his people. And so those were the four spring festivals. Then you had this gap for the summer. And then in the seventh month, they came back for three more festivals in the fall, the fall festivals, all in the same month. The first one was a festival of trumpets, where trumpets would be blown throughout the land, verses 23 to 25, and all the people would have a solemn rest. Soon after that was the Day of Atonement, verses 26 to 32. You might remember this from a few weeks ago. This was the one day in the year, the special day, in which the high priest alone, with the blood of the sacrificial goat, would enter into the Holy of Holies, into the immediate presence of God on behalf of the people. And another goat, a scapegoat, would bear the sins of the people and be sent out and be banished 
far away into the wilderness to die. That was the Day of Atonement. And then finally, you had the Festival of Booths or Tabernacles to close out the year. Uh, this is in verses 33 to 44. It was the final festival of the year. And in this festival, the people all constructed tents or tabernacles, and they lived in them for a week, camping for a week. And the purpose of this was to show that they remember and recall the time when God brought them out of Egypt and they lived in the wilderness in tents and God himself dwelled among his people. God's presence was with them in a tent even as they lived in tents. And so we see that for Israel, all of the year was God-centered and revolved around the worship of God. He was the Lord of time the Lord of seasons, the Lord of the calendar and the Lord of their lives. And they were to remember throughout the year his great acts of redemption, his faithfulness, his provision all through the year for generations. And so you might ask the question, well, do these festivals have any significance for us? And the answer is we do not keep these feasts as they are because they were part of the old covenant for Israel and they were tied to a particular nationalistic and historical context. No, instead, as Colossians chapter 2 says uh, in verse 17 that we saw earlier, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Christ fulfills the festivals. And as we see Christ fulfill the festivals, they in fact have enormous significance for us in another way. Every one of these festivals and the entirety of the calendar is fulfilled in Jesus. Think about it, beginning with Passover. Jesus is our Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In the beginning of John's gospel, John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, Behold the lamb of God who has taken away, who will take away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Passover lamb who died on the cross, giving his body and blood so that we might be rescued, redeemed from slavery to sin and death. And we commemorate this in a new Passover meal, the Lord's Supper, as we saw a few weeks ago, where we remember Jesus' body and blood given for us to rescue us from sin. The feast of the unleavened bread is fulfilled in Christ because Jesus creates a pure people in the church. It represents the purity of the church and the urgency with which we must separate ourselves from sin. We see this also in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6-8. to eight. Your boasting is not good, says Paul. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And what Paul is saying there is that the festival of unleavened bread points to the purity of the church and the urgency with which we must guard the purity of the church. And he was exhorting these people to practice church discipline urgently on an unrepentant sinner so that the church would remain unleavened and pure. Not only does Christ fulfill the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, dying on the cross to save us from sin and creating a pure people. He also fulfills the festival of first fruits in his resurrection. In his resurrection. Because Jesus is raised from the dead and he is the first fruits of God's new creation. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection of Christ is the first fruits of the new creation. And when we are born again and come to know Jesus, we become the first fruits of that new creation. James 1.18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The festival of first fruits points forward to the resurrection and the new creation that we become in Christ. And of course, the final spring festival is Pentecost. And you all know what happened on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived. They were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The feast of Pentecost celebrated God's provision in the harvest and here God provides and gives His Spirit. The, the, the Lord Jesus Christ crucified for sinners, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, 
pours out his spirit upon his people so that there is a great harvest of souls. And so the spring festivals follow this order, moving from Passover being fulfilled in Jesus' death, the feast of unleavened bread, the purity of the church, the feast of first fruits, the resurrection of Christ and of his people, and the feast of Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit. And then we are in the summer where there's this gap which represents the present age, I think. It represents this season now where we continue gathering in the harvest. And then you have the seventh month, which is the month of completion. The number seven represents completion, perfection, where you have these three fall festivals that round out the year. And they too point us forward to the completed work of Jesus when he comes again. Think about it. The fall festivals begin with the festival of trumpets. And the festival of trumpets, as we know in the New Testament, points forward to the second coming of Christ. That the trumpets will sound and our Lord Jesus Christ will return to gather us to himself. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Soon after that in the fall was the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement here was to represent the final judgment. The final judgment when, like the high priest, entered the presence of God with the blood of the sacrificial goat, believers, those who have trusted Christ, will enter the presence of God forever. And like the scapegoat was banished into the wilderness to die, those who have not trusted Christ will be banished forever into the eternal wilderness of hell under the wrath of God. You might say, well, I thought the day of atonement was fulfilled on the cross. So how are you saying it's fulfilled in the final judgment? And the answer is yes. At the cross, what happens in the final judgment was brought forward for believers. Because at the cross, Jesus fulfilled what the high priest does, entering into the Holy of Holies, dying as the sacrificial goat. And Jesus took our place as the scapegoat with the sins of his people upon him. He bore those sins far away into the wilderness, experiencing the wrath of God for sinners. And so on the final day of judgment, the day of atonement will be reenacted once again as believers come into God's presence, but as those who have rejected Christ are banished. Finally, the fall festivals close out with the festival of booths or tabernacles. And I said the festival of tabernacles represent God dwelling with his people. And again, this points forward to God dwelling with us tabernacling with us in the new heavens and the new earth, in the eternal state, in the new creation. Revelation chapter 21 verse 3. By the way, the word dwelling consistently means tabernacling, camping, tenting. So I'll translate it for you that way. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will tabernacle with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So you see how the entire calendar tells the gospel story, right from Passover to the festival of tabernacles. Jesus dying for sinners, purifying his people, the church, presenting us as the first fruits by his resurrection, giving us his spirit, and then coming again with the trumpet sound to enact the final judgment when we will be gathered into the presence of God while those who have rejected him will be banished. And then finally we will dwell with God. We will tabernacle with our creator and savior forever. The festivals tell the gospel story. They tell our story and the story of our redeemer. And we in the new covenant have a special festival in which we are to regularly meet with God and rehearse this gospel story. There's only one festival commanded in the Bible for Christians, for New Covenant believers. Everything else is optional. And believe it or not, it's not Christmas. Okay? 
That's optional. The one festival commanded in the New Testament, the, I remember I told you these were the appointed meetings with God. The appointed meeting that we as Christians have with God is gathered worship with the church on a weekly basis. That's a clear command. Hebrews chapter 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we wait for that day when the trumpet will sound and Jesus will return, this is what we are to do. We are to meet together weekly and celebrate our feast, our festival. This is what God has commanded for the good of our souls, for our blessing, for our good. You know, it amazes me as a pastor how often and how freely believers will sometimes neglect the clear command of God just for personal convenience. I know these are subnormal times and these are hard times and there are some of you with health and safety uh, compromises and, and immunocompromised who you need to stay home. But for the rest of us, this is very clear. And you know, I've seen sometimes people will casually abstain from God's commanded meeting for the sake of cheaper flight tickets or for some hobby, sports, maybe for work. And I know it's hard. I get it. You know, I knew a, a Christian brother many years ago. Uh, this was while I was in seminary and uh, he did not have a job. We were in the USA, he did not have a job. Things were really financially tight for him and his wife. And he finally found a job, and it was at a hotel. And this job required him to work every alternate Sunday. So he would have to miss gathered worship every alternate Sunday. And I remember him struggling through this, you know, the, the, the tension of needing the provision that this job would bring versus missing worship with the church. And eventually he took the decision that he would not take the job. And I remember his rationale was, the needs of my soul are more important than the needs of my body and my bank account. And I trust God to provide. And he will sustain me. And even if I have financial need, I know that God will sustain me by his grace. And I watched as the Lord honored this brother's decision and how the Lord provided for him and his wife. Sometimes things were very difficult. They went through many seasons of trials, but I see how well they're doing today by God's grace. Friends, new covenant worship is our feast, and it's for our good. And Jesus is the Lord of time. He's the Lord of our days. He is to be the Lord of our weeks and months and years, and he is the sovereign Lord who should own our calendars. God keeps covenant faithfulness with his people. And he is a God who brings us into covenant relationship with him. That leads to our third accomplishment of the Lord Jesus in this passage. We've seen that in Christ we keep God's Sabbath. We've seen that in Christ we keep God's festivals. And finally, in Christ we keep God's covenant. After all of the laws and instruction on sacred time in chapter 26, God lays out as the book closes, the blessings and curses of the covenant. God's relationship to human beings is always defined in terms of covenant. What, what is a covenant? A covenant is a committed relationship marked by loyal love and built on binding promises. And in chapter 26, God opens once again by declaring who he is. And then in verses 3 to 13, he lays out the blessings of the covenant. Blessings for his people if they obey him. These are conditioned on obedience. And they include blessings of provision, blessings of protection, blessings of God's presence. You might be tempted to think that uh, what the Bible here is teaching, some people distort this to say, if, oh, if we obey God, then we can earn his favor. But that's not what this is intended to teach. Remember, God has already rescued his people and brought them to himself. Obedience is a loving response to what God has already done by His grace. 
And the central blessing of obedience to the covenant is in verses 11 and 12. Listen to this. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. The central blessing promised is God's presence with his people. God would walk among his people just like he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. But then the text takes a darker turn. In verses 14 to 39, we see the curses of the covenant. And for disobedience, God promised judgment and curse. Curses in the form of disease, drought, famine, wild beasts who would devour them, defeat in the face of enemies, total destruction. God said that for, if they disobeyed Him, things would reached such a state of desperation that in hunger, people would eat their own children. And the sad thing is, as you read the rest of the Bible, the rest of the story, it all comes true. You see, the people of Israel had God's law, but they didn't have good hearts. They were never able to obey or keep this law. They violated every one of these commands. They sacrificed their children to false idols and false gods. They turned away from God. They didn't keep the Sabbaths. They didn't keep the the, the year of Jubilee. In fact, the rich grew richer and oppressed the poor. They didn't even keep the Passover. And so they experienced the judgment and the curse of God. And things reached a state of desperation in Israel as they were defeated by enemy after enemy and finally driven out of the promised land. And that's not just the story of Israel, friends. That's the story of the whole world. That's our story. Starting in Genesis 3, all of us banished from God's presence because of sin. All of us living under the curse of God. As we look at this world around us, we see cancer and car accidents. We see malaria and all kinds of diseases, we see war and famine and natural disasters. It's easy to see that this world is under God's curse and judgment. And and maybe the question that arises in your heart as you hear that is, oh, how could God be so harsh? My friend, you're asking the wrong question. Because when you look at our Creator's kindness and grace and benevolence and how gracious He has been to us, the question should not be, how could He be so harsh? But how could human beings in light of God's grace be so wicked, so ungrateful, so rebellious, so bold-faced as to rebel against a holy creator God? So we rightly deserve his curse. And you could read all of the curses of this covenant in chapter 26 and they are weighty. But I think the easiest way to summarize all of those curses is given by a a wonderful Bible teacher named R.C. Sproul. He says the way to understand the curse of God is to understand it in light of the blessing of God. And you think about the ultimate blessing of God in number six. You know the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And to understand what it means to be under God's curse as we are, you have to flip that around. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. Death forever under the curse of Almighty God. The infinite weight of God's wrath coming to crush us in judgment. This is where we stand because of our sin. This is what we deserve because of our sin. An infinite and immeasurable curse falling upon us for our sin against the infinite and almighty God. But friends, that's what makes the gospel of Christ infinitely glorious. Because the curse that you and I deserve, the curse that sinners deserve, Jesus bore that curse. Jesus has taken it upon himself for all who trust him. Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that as Jesus, the son of God, hung on the cross, he bore upon himself the curse that we deserve 
took upon himself the full weight of the wrath of God against sinners so that we might receive forgiveness of sins and our curse might be turned to blessing. And in Christ, God has accomplished a greater work. He has given us a better covenant in which we have new hearts that are able to live under his lordship. Hebrews 8, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. In verses 10 to 12 he says, This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In Christ, a new covenant with full forgiveness of sins. In Christ, a new covenant with true and complete knowledge of God. In Christ, a new covenant with the law of God, not external to us, but written on our hearts so that we can truly live lives in obedience to Him, lives that are holy and bring Him glory only in Christ. So I want to call you again today to turn away from your sin and come to this covenant-keeping Savior Consecrate your life to Jesus. Let him be your substitute who takes your curse. Let him be your perfect representative who perfectly obeys God's law on your behalf. Let him be the one who brings you into covenant relationship and blessing. The book of Leviticus ends almost anticlimactically with a chapter on vows in chapter 27. You might think, oh, I saw the covenant curses and the blessings and the promise of restoration. I thought the book would end there, but suddenly there's this chapter on vows. Seems anticlimactic, and it is. And I'm going to summarize that chapter simply by saying, when something is made holy, that's what this chapter teaches, when something is committed to, devoted to a holy God, it belongs fully to Him. And so as we end today, I want to ask you where your heart is in regard to Christ. Do you fully belong to Jesus? He's the perfect sacrifice who takes away our sins. He's the perfect high priest, the greater mediator who brings us into God's presence. He's the only one who can make us clean and holy On the cross, he tore the temple veil, making the way for us to enter God's presence. And he will come one day in the ultimate fulfillment of the year of Jubilee to free us from all our toil, all our sorrows, and bring us into the blessing of life in God's presence forever. Is he the Lord of your lives, your calendar, your hearts. Will you devote yourself to live for Him? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus, our great Savior, our great High Priest and perfect sacrifice. Enable us, Lord, to live all of life as worship and consecrated devotion unto Him and Him alone. In Jesus' name, amen.